We're in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, and Paul has uh, come through great explanation. Uh, the summary of this book could be uh, walking in the light. And, and he, he goes through the whole process of talking about you know, what the Lord accomplished and how that uh, strength and uh, capability has been transferred into us and then what that looks like in, in uh, the Christian life. And he even gets down to the particulars of husbands and wives and children and, and employees and employers. And he gets very specific about how you work these things out and how walking in the light uh, what it looks like for us and what it behaves like. And uh, that's why at verse 10, he says, finally, my brethren. And, uh, you know, it isn't like Paul's preached a long sermon and he's, you know, saying, okay, so my conclusion, finally, you know, let me just wrap this up. It's the idea much rather of you know, in light of everything I've said, uh, you know, everything spearheads down uh, to this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Um, that uh, statement, uh, be strong, uh, in a literal translation, is strengthen yourself. You know, it, it isn't the idea of uh, God is just going to pour magic out upon you and make you strong. I mean, there's the supernatural aspect of the Holy Spirit that we must rely upon, and he's going to talk about that in detail, but it's the idea that you have to strengthen yourself. And, uh, man, there is just such a wimpy attitude amongst Christians today. The, the idea of, uh, you know, I just, I'm totally defeated. There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm waiting for God to do something in my life. And the Lord gives the command, you need to strengthen yourself. I've given you all of the resources. I've set out everything that you need. And now you're going to have to strengthen yourself. You know, probably we all know someone or perhaps we've been that person ourselves, who they had resources and possibilities and assets in their life that we kind of wish we had that they're doing nothing with and, and you you just kind of like gosh grab a hold of something and get to work and, and instead uh, they squander and waste uh, this is exactly what is being said here you know the whole of the previous uh, five plus chapters here that paul has laid out finally take that all together and strengthen yourself be strong it's a commandment of be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, uh, doing some word study, uh, power here, and you know, I always, I'm bugged sometimes by the guys who I think go too far into word study with things, but this has some uh, hidden gem to it. Uh, power, the idea of the strength being in action. Uh, might is the reserved energy for the, the, the power. So, you know, how, you, however you want to, you know, illustrate that you got to, you know, a whole tank of fuel on board. Uh, you got to turn the key and put your foot down on the accelerator. You know, the, the power that you want to see produced, it, it's in the might of the Lord, the, the fuel tank. You got to transfer, what is in stored power into the actual production of power. Uh, the Lord has given to us what is necessary to strengthen ourselves in this power for action, for work, for the doing from his might. Uh, so many Christians just sit on their laurels. And, you know, I, I can't believe in this current crisis we've been through the number of uh, Christian pastors who uh, believe that doing absolutely nothing uh, during this process is uh, what the Lord has called us to. 
you know, they're publishing, you know, their blog and their articles and their statements about, you know, I just had a conversation not with the pastor directly, but with a member of a congregation who, uh, you know, I was all excited and, you know, saying like, man, you guys, you guys must be opening up. You're getting, you know, the, the uh, no, they're, they're still closed. And I said, wow, you're still closed? Like no church? And um, no, so like you do it. No, no online services, no outdoor meeting. Like when COVID-19 started, they shut their doors. They haven't been together as a fellowship since. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine uh, what that would be like. I, I'm not even like, you know, uh, so much criticizing that as literally I think about this fellowship and what it would be like right now to have not seen your faces yet. You know, months ago when they said our communities are closed and they and their church shut their door and for all of this time I wouldn't have seen you or your kids or wow. That's crippling. It's incredible that, that they're you know functioning that way. The church needs to rise up and, and allow this might that the Lord has provided us with to be strength in our person and in our conduct. There, there's much, much worse coming, much worse than what we've just been through. And if Christians don't start waking up, the, the church is just, well, yeah. I mean, Jesus told us, right? That that is going to happen to the church. The love of many is going to grow cold and, and that there's going to be a great falling away. Uh, prior to his return. I think we're in the process of seeing some of it. People are just fading off and falling off. And listen, uh, I'll just reassure you again as your pastor uh, that no matter how far this all goes, right, if we're meeting in my living room once a week, we're still going to have fired up sermons and messages and song and, and meet together and encourage one another and walk out the door and preach the gospel to the community that we're in. It doesn't. It doesn't matter, you know, how small the group gets, how you know condensed we have to be. I know what Christ has called us to. I know what Christ has called me to, and I'm going to encourage you in that and push you out the door into doing that. Christ is going to sustain. Uh, one of the things people brought up. Oh well, my job. You know, if I go against this, my job. You know what? It, 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 that's not what's been providing for you all these years. I'll say that again. Yeah, Christ provided you with that job, but it was Christ that was providing for you. And if that dries up and goes away, Christ will still provide for you. He's going to take care of you through this process. Even as it gets worse, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Probably Paul was actually thinking about David because the wording is so similar in the Old Testament, and Paul was so proficient as a professor of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, there in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David had been away at war and returns to Ziklag, his home, all of his men's home. Uh, 1 Samuel 30 verse 1 had happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. Imagine, you come home from the warfare, and your all your families are gone, taken captive, and your home and your entire countryside is burned. Not figuratively, literally. That's what you walk back into. Their hearts sank. Then the people began to turn on David, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But here it is, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself. He, he, he talked himself into it, you know, what the old timers say, right? You pick yourself up by your bootstraps sort of attitude. We, we have to do that. There's, there's got to be some grit 
to who we are as believers. Uh, the, the world will absolutely sap you of your strength. If, if you listen to that, look at that, buy into that, uh, you know, you'll cower in fear. And of course, I, I just need to dwell on this being the Lord's strength, the Lord's power. We're reliant upon it, but it's, it's his strength, not our own. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by the spirit or my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That I, I love that picture because Zerubbabel and the men that had come back, you know, nation of Israel falls into sin over and over. Eventually conquered by the Assyrians, taken away into captivity, 70 years there. Daniel hears from the Lord about how they're going to be released. Nehemiah begins to pray. The king of Assyria uh, asks of him, you know, what do you want? He says, I want to go back and rebuild. I want to resettle Jerusalem. I want to rebuild the temple. I want to rebuild the walls. King says, go. Written orders from the king. You can go back and you can rebuild your land. They're all excited about returning until they get there because they arrive and 70 years earlier, right? So here we are in 2020. Imagine 70 years ago, driven out of the land, held captive in you know, Babylon and Assyria. The place was destroyed with invasive ar army, practically bulldozed in you know a modern sense and burned with fire and then 70 years of overgrowth, right? You ever seen a 70-year oak tree? They're big. A 70-year-old oak tree is big. 70 years of overgrowth. They arrive back and they are completely discouraged with the fact that this was Jerusalem. They haven't been there. It's not like they visited annually. They have an ideal in their head, and when they arrive, they are completely discouraged. The mounds of rubble that were walls and homes, right, that have that were destroyed by war and now have been destroyed through time and erosion, and their hearts just melt. And in examining that wreckage, that's where that verse comes from. In prayer, what are we going to do? With this mess, Lord, how are we going to rebuild? How are we ever going to move forward? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how you're going to move forward. You're going to say to these mountains, move, and they'll be moved. The mountains that are being referred to by the prophet Zechariah are the mountains of rubble. Right? Does your life feel like that? The wreckage and ruin of years and sin and and, you know, marriages and finance or who knows what. And you're looking at it and just going, what in the world? And the Lord says, by my spirit, by my spirit, this, this can be done and will be done. So verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 6 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Classic verse in all of Christianity, but you know several things to consider in the process. Uh, the first of which is put on the whole armor, right? As we start into the list, you don't want to put on part of the armor, right? You don't you don't want to like charge out into battle with your shield and your sword and your shoes and your helmet. And no breastplate. Um, I've uh, taken up years ago uh, archery, traditional shooting, uh, no sights, longbow. And uh, uh, studying um, the ancient archers, uh, they had a totally different form. But, um, man, their method was ridiculous. Uh, inside the castle, uh, they 
usually were shooting out through an arrow slit. They had assigned positions all the way around the castle. So an archer would stand inside the wall, and there was a tapered wedge that narrowed down to a slit that was usually around two inches wide, and they would just step left and right and look for targets out through that slit, and they would fire out through a two-inch slit. They could hit their running target, moving target from that position as much as 50 yards away. Perfect accuracy, timing their run and everything. Bang, nail their targets. That was interesting enough. Two different uh, arrowheads that they used. Uh, one was an armor-piercing uh, long steel point, and the second one was a broad head uh, to hit softer targets that would make massive, huge wounds. So if you're shooting at an armored target, you use the long steel tip so that it will penetrate and, and make a, a, a massive puncture wound. If you're shooting at, shooting at a soft target, use a broad head so that it would cut wide and tear open uh, the flesh. They can hit their targets uh, through a two-inch arrow slit out through the castle wall. Dead runs, bang, nail you. This enemy we're talking about has been at this warfare, right? Lucifer and his minions, he has been at this warfare against the human race for at least 6,000 years. How, how proficient do you get at something if you have done it over and over for a year? Right? If you've done it for 25 years, you're considered, with proficiency, you're considered an expert in your field. Right? If you've been doing it for thousands, it's probably effortless to destroy a human being, to attack them and hit them. If our enemy looks out across the spiritual battlefield and here comes some buffoon without his shield, he's pretty easy to take down. He's got his shield, but no breastplate. you got to know where he's going to aim, right? you you got to know what he's going to hit. you got to put on the whole armor. So as we move forward, we'll talk about the whole armor. Notice that it's the armor of God. That certainly means that it's armor sent to us from God. But the scripture actually gives us a confirmation that this is the same armor God wears. That's an interesting concept. That's not a speculation. We see it contained throughout the scripture. Uh, there are uh, many things regarding this that we'll, we'll talk about as we move forward. The first thing I want us to take note of, uh, Luke chapter 11. Jesus talks about this a little bit. In verse 20, he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God. Now, before I move on with that, there are a couple of different thoughts. Um, it could mean that Jesus, in talking about casting out demons, it's as simple as you like flicking the piece of paper off from your table or desk or whatever. That, that idea of something that would be so frightening and horrifying for anyone else to see or experience that they would cower at seeing a demon-possessed human being freaking out. You know, Jesus just flicks the problem away. Could be that, and certainly the way he deals with it seems like that, but it seems more the idea that the finger is the idea of an order. Because that's physically how he deals with them. They do their spaz, throw the child on the ground, throw the person in the fire, throw them into the water, trying to kill them, you know, screaming and yelling. And Jesus just says, leave. And that's all he does. Finger of God points in the direction they should go. You go away. That's how effortless it is for the son of God to drive out something that would destroy you. In grand scheme of spiritual warfare and battlefield, when Jesus shows up, just deals with it with directions, right? Demons fall on the ground, 
and, and scream and yell according to the scripture and say, you know, are you here to torture us before the appointed time? Are you sending us into the abyss? And he just demands that they leave. So Jesus makes that statement. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. Classic schoolyard, you know, bully. Everybody's scared of him until the bigger bully shows up and just says, leave. And that's the power of Jesus Christ. There's no contest. You know, Hollywood has depicted, you know, these movies of, you know, Satan battling God and different, you know, scenarios. All of that is just man's uneducated, vain, stupid imagination. When, when God shows up in the flesh, there's no contest. The enemy just sheds his armor and leaves. So, you know, to whatever degree you've experienced very frightening supernatural things in life, know that Christ is that much more powerful and you're on his team. So this armor and, and what is described there, Colossians chapter 2, 15 says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. You know, the crucifixion of the cross, you know, it's been depicted as, you know, Satan pouring out all this great power and overpowering Jesus. Jesus resurrecting himself from the dead was his totally embarrassing Satan with the use of his greatest power. I, I hate to, you know, illustrate using Princess Bride, but if you've seen that stupid movie, which our family very much enjoys, that the great sword duel that goes on there, and they come to that moment where, you know, why are you smiling? You know, that we're in the midst of this thing. He says, you know, I know something you do not know. What is it? I am not left-handed, you know, and he, he switches over to right-handed dueling and, you know, completely conquers. Uh, the strength of the Lord so eclipses our enemy. Uh, his armor, his warfare, his battle embarrassed Satan. You know, what's the worst thing that Satan could throw at? Death. Death. You know, temptation. We went through, you know, Jesus went through that at the beginning of his ministry as Lucifer takes him through, uh, you know, those trials and temptings after 40 days of praying and fasting. And those temptations weren't the worst. Death. Deliver him unto death. Jesus just gets up after three days. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had older brothers. Uh, my oldest brother, Jeff, and I were sort of cut from a similar cloth, very rebellious troublemakers. Middle brother, Andy, uh, a lot more. I mean, if he needed to contend with somebody, he could he could show you something also. But, uh, you know, Jeff and I scrap around quite a bit. And uh, I got to my mid-teen years, and I decided that um, – Jeff pushing me around, uh, I wasn't going to put up with anymore. So I purposely escalated a particular circumstance, and um, I, I was going to beat him up in my mind. And uh, so I, I pushed in just a few minutes this situation to where we were now in a physical brawl. And uh, my mom just stepped back and said, anything you break, you guys are paying for. And, uh, you know, she wasn't a hands-off mom, but, you know, we're grown teenagers and he's years older than me and uh, I've taken it upon myself that I'm going to conquer him. And uh, at one point, he just absolutely flattened me to the floor 
and I was still going. I was mad as all get out, and I sprang right up and nailed him in the face as hard as I could. And he did this weird, like, Clint Eastwood thing where he just snapped his head around, and he looked back at me with a rage in his eyes I'd never seen before, and he snapped me right up off the floor bodily, completely, and threw me right out through the door to the porch. Glass shattered in wood, landed on the porch. Just I figured it out then, man. There was I wasn't going to conquer the man. You know what I'm saying? I just I had made my best attempt. <laughs> Plowed him right in the face, and uh, he was completely unfazed, and just threw me through the air. You know, Christ embarrassed Satan. Pour out your worst. Death? Well, I suppose I could go preach to these guys for three days, you know, that were apparently in Abraham's bosom. And uh, after three days of sharing with all of the souls that were waiting for salvation who had died before Jesus had come to the cross... He left there and returned to life. He embarrassed. So our warfare, that's the level of potential that we have, you guys. The untapped potential, the greatest temptations that we face, even in our own flesh. We don't tap into what's there. We try to wrestle and struggle and deal with it on a human level, and that's why we fail. Because we're not dealing with it in the way that the Lord had designed. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, the professors way smarter than me seem to think that principalities, powers, rulers, and these hosts of wickedness are actually rank. That there are positions within this wicked culture of the demonic forces that have to do with hierarchy. And, and we see some of those things described for us. Daniel chapter 10 as the prophet was praying for the Lord's wisdom about the future of Israel, an angel came to him and delivered the message 21 days after he began praying and fasting. And that angel said to me, Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. This is an angel talking about the spiritual forces and their positions of authority. And as he was making his way to Daniel, he met the wicked hosts who kept him from at least having clear passage to come to Daniel with the message until uh, we see that uh, Michael, the archangel, came and delivered him from that conflict or imprisonment or circumstance so that he could deliver the message to Daniel. We have many uh, references throughout the scripture that tell us there are literal demons and there is a hierarchy of demonic hosts that have power and authority and dominion here on earth. The beautiful thing is, and greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. 
You have the Holy Spirit residing in you. You don't have to be concerned about this at all. You concentrate on that negativity and you can get overwhelmed. You know, I came down here and one of the local Christians in leadership told me that we were going to have a terrible time down here setting up a church because the church of Wicca was down here and they have organized witches that travel around uh, and pronounce curses upon the local churches to keep them from being effective. And I was stunned that this man was telling me this with a straight face because I'm saying, guy, like, do you not know the word of God? Like greater, like I just quoted, you know, greater is he who is in me, who is in the world than he who is in the world. Do you not understand that we have the Holy Spirit who has conquered all of these? Do you not understand that Christ has embarrassed the powers of our enemy? Do you not understand the Old Testament that says, you know, all these witches are pronouncing these curses upon these churches? Do you not understand uh, the Old Testament that says that a, a curse without founding will not stand? Right? I mean, if they come and pronounce a curse upon this church, it's 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 more like the idea of, you know, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whenever you say bounce on me, sticks on you. I mean, you can't you can't raise yourself up against Christ. You know, Christ is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we don't have to be concerned about these things. The thing that causes our enemy to be most effective is our cooperation with him. You know, he, sells, he yells boo and we jump. Stand your ground. Have, have this strength. Strengthen yourself as the scripture is telling us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, from the English Standard Version. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means you're going to have to open your mouth. When people start saying things against your faith, you need to just stand up and say the truth. Here's something, you know, I, I've uh, watched Christians who aren't very skilled at knowing all of the details about, you know, like the history of the Bible and things of that nature. You know, somebody come to them and say, oh, the Bible is full of lies and contradictions. And I've watched unskilled people who have enough boldness stand up and say, really? Name one. Because almost always those people don't have any response. You don't have to be skilled at dealing with all these things. Just stand up in the truth and defy the lie. Actually show some opposition. You know, what allows it to be strong is the lack of opposition. It's the doing nothing. You know, you can just say, I know that's not true. And as they spout off and go on and on about whatever, you can just say, and I know that's not true. Well, what's your evidence? What do you know? Not much. I know that's not true. I don't have to sit here and argue about the authorship of the Bible, the authority of the scriptures, the historicity. I don't need to know archaeology. I don't have to have, you know, a Ph.D. in science in order to stand there and tell you that what you're saying isn't true. I know the word of God is true, and I know that what you're saying is not. Hey, you know, it's interesting to me. My wife's seen this a number of times also, is on the occasions where someone will be bold enough, it's usually her or I in some of the settings we're in, uh, it, it, we may not even have the equipment to attack, but there's somebody there who just didn't have the boldness, but they have the knowledge. You have the boldness to stay up and say, that's wrong, that's not true. And the person next to you who actually has the knowledge, who didn't have the boldness, will lean on your boldness and then fight with you. Join your team. The cowardice of Christianity has allowed it to be conquered. In the world around us, the promotion of life, evolution, what an amazing thing. If you guys can just remember this one fact, 
you'll be able to defeat any evolutionist. You don't have to be a scientist beyond this that I'm about to give you. There are no transitionary fossils, period. End of discussion. None. Zero. Right? They say, uh, for instance, uh, th that lizards became birds. Lizards literally wanted to be birds so bad that they changed themselves into birds and became birds. I'm, I mean, I know I'm mocking, but I'm not even saying that in a mocking way. That's literally what science teaches. They wanted to be birds so bad that they changed themselves into birds. Their, their scales grew longer and longer and then began to split and eventually formed feathers. And then they began jumping from the trees in an effort to fly. And just the downy effect of their feathers let them, you know, glide to the ground easier until they could eventually, you know, horizontally glide. And then they started flapping. And because they recognized the inconsistency of their little spindly lizard arms, they began to go webbing across that would, you know, promote greater, you know, density in the arch of the wing until they could actually soar and then flap and then you know, elevate themselves in flight. Wow, that's a lot of imagination right there. Here's the thing. They say it took some 35 million years for that to take place. 35 million years. <clears throat> 35 million years for the lizard <clears throat> to become a bird. That means... You're going to have a whole bunch of fossils along the way, according to their theory of fossilization, <coughs> of creatures that are halfway between being a lizard and a bird. You're going to have lizard birds, all various stages of lizard bird. There are no lizard birds. There is no transitionary fossil for any of the creatures at all. Here's what you can know. When somebody says to you, oh, well, what about this fossil? You can say this. I'm telling you, remember I told you this. You can say this with absolute confidence. That is fake. There's no evidence for it. You know, can you say that to yourself right now in your mind? That is fake. There's no evidence for that. You don't have to even go research. You can go research. Every single one of these supposed transitionary fossils, they're fake. They're, they're lies. Most of them don't even exist. The ones that do exist are scattered bone structures that have been assembled inappropriately. They find this bone, and a mile later downriver, they find this bone, and then three miles later, they find this bone, and then they put them all together because in their mind, clearly these all belong to one species. And they build a structure out of it. DNA has made fools of them for the most part because anything that they were able to test for DNA proves this bone isn't from this creature, the second bone isn't from this creature, the third bone. They have nothing to do with one another. The transitionary fossils, one, don't exist. Those that they try to present are not true. There's no evidence of it. That's all you need to know. And you can dismantle the rest. They want to go other places, just stick to that, right? Because they want to start talking molecular stuff. They want to talk about universal stuff. They want to talk about microscopic stuff. It's all going to come up to the species changing from one species to the next. And there are no transitionary fossils. That's all you need to know. And you can defeat that lie. Destroying the arguments, right? The weapons of our warfare are not earthly. They're not the, the physical gun and the physical sword. They are the warfare of the mind and the intellect and the conversations. Christ created all things. <clears throat> take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, again, therefore take the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. <clears throat> and having done all the stand, this is, you know, stand. We need to stand in Christ. That <coughs> armor 
that I mentioned was Christ's armor. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 17, <coughs> says, speaking of the Lord, and he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Our God arms himself and goes into battle. If our God arms himself and puts on armor, surely we need to also. <clears throat> Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. You know, Satan is both the tempter and the accuser. This warfare that we're in, he'll lead you into it and then he'll attack you with it. You have to arm yourself, uh, you know, constantly against what is coming. Stand there for having gird your waist. So that idea of verse 13, you know, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand, stand therefore, having gird your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You have to stand your ground. That's all you're going to do. Stand your ground. The um, Roman legions were taught to defend an 11-foot circle. They would plant a pivot foot, right or left foot dominant, right or left hand dominant, and they would pivot on that one foot with their shield tucked close into their body and an 18-inch short sword. And they conquered the world uh, with that fighting tactic. They had other shields and other swords that they used. But the, within this discussion, just stand your ground. It, you know, it, it isn't, now that you put on all this armor, array yourself in massive legions and go and mow down miles of territory and conquer for the Lord. It's stand your ground. Defend your little pea patch. You know, the place where the Lord has planted you. Your workplace. Your, your life. Your family. Stand up for the cause of Christ. Great. Take your armor into the voting booth. You know, the Lord leads you uh, to run for office and, you know, go and change politics, please, let's do that together. You know, you need a position in town council, uh, you know, school board, um, you know, state representative, Washington, D.C., uh, U.N., <laughs> let's do that. But wherever you currently are, defend your faith there. It is the shrinking back that has allowed our enemy to take over each one of those little pockets until he's the one who's now defending those territories. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's this little tiny loud minority in our culture that's taking over everything. The militant homosexual population, which is running the show and, and completely destroying our culture. There is such a need for Christians to stand their ground. Do it in love. Say it with a smile on your face. Just don't be moved off from the godly position that's been given to you in the place that you are at. We must stand, having gird your waist with truth. Right? Like I said, defending the truth. Uh, you know, refuting the lies. You, you got to stand your ground with having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Look, if you're not walking in righteousness, that is a big, wide open target. Your chest, your heart, your integrity, you know, if you're sneaking around, yeah, stealing, uh, lying, 
you know, drunk, uh, fornicating. If there, are, if there's unrighteousness in your life, that massive protective layer in the central core of your body gone, the center core of your spirit gone, that is going to open you wide up for attack, wide up for failure. Right? You know, any of the guys that have done training in shooting no right just shoot for center mass just hit the center mass of the target worry about you know the finishing later just put the object on the ground our enemy aims for unrighteousness just target as he can what he will you gotta have your life clad in righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The thing that's going to get you to the finish line is knowing what the gospel of Christ is. Good news. You're a sinner. You need to come to the place of admitting your sin. Admitting Christ is the, the only source of salvation and accepting that. That's how simple the gospel is. That you're a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation and that you're accepting that. And that's the gospel message. You can spread it out a lot further than that, but that's the simplicity of what we're dealing with every single day. That's going to make you quick to the point. You know, people get on to all kinds of discussion. Well, I'm a really good person. I haven't done anything wrong. Have you ever sinned? Because if you've ever sinned, then you've fallen short of the glory of God. You are a sinner. Right? Those people that tell you they're really good, generally speaking, the ones that would tell you that actually are. So you just get to the point of, have you ever sinned? Because if you've ever sinned, then you need salvation. That'll get you quick to the point of your need for Jesus Christ. This preparation of the gospel above all taking the shield of faith which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one so many people don't function in faith they go to work their faith is left at home they take their faith and go to church and they come home and usually before they get home they've already abandoned it it's like something they just keep in the trunk of their car it's only taken out when they go into the church that faith needs to function everywhere. Everywhere that you are, your faith has to be in function. You need to share with people. You need to present to people your faith. That will protect you if you function in such a way that when the temptation comes, when the opportunity arises, you can't do it. You're functioning in faith. You think about Joseph. Nobody's around, he's alone, beautiful wife, or someone else's wife, is throwing herself at him. And what does he say? How can I sin against God, and your husband, and myself? His whole function is in light of God and his relationship with God. God can't become compartmentalized, you guys. If that's what we do with our lives, cut that out right now. It can't be that, you know, when I'm around these Christians, then I, I act in a faith-filled way. When I'm on my own, when it's another time, when I'm with, a, you know, the bowling league, when I go play pool, I just, you know, that's, that's a different. No. The, the shield of faith needs to be with us continuously protecting us from all of those things that the devil would strike us with. Take up the helmet of salvation. Now, have you with your mind, right? As an illustration, he could have made salvation anything. The shoes in this armored picture, right? Could have made salvation the faith. No, it's the mind. Have you made the conversion and made the commitment? Do you understand with your mind that you've made a decision for Christ? You belong to Christ. Your thinking process is protected and guided by Christ. This belongs to Jesus. 
not someone else, nothing else. doesn't belong to me. I don't get to think about other things. I, how about this, you guys? Um, you know, uh, the eyeball and the brain, I'm fascinated with it, love to talk, spiritual discussions about all of that. The, the eyeball is part of the brain. When you look at my eye, when I look at your eye, I'm literally looking at, I'm literally looking at your brain. What goes into your eye? Part of your brain. The helmet of salvation. Your mind. Protecting your eyes. What you read. Protecting what you see. Protecting what enters your soul. And your thought process and your experience. That wicked imagery. right? We say things like, I can't unsee that. No, you can't. So very, very important. We have become so callous through our lives that very often we forget what it was like to be a child. Um, I, I remember um, being allowed to go to a family's house that were non-Christians. One of the first times I ever went to a non-Christian house. I had never even heard of a horror movie. And they put on a horror movie. I couldn't sleep for days. My mind was polluted. I was horrified with what I saw and what I experienced there. My soul was forever changed and scarred for having had that experience. The mind must be protected by our salvation. That means you say, no, I'm saved, therefore I won't look at that. No, I'm saved, therefore I will not listen to this. No, I'm saved, therefore I will not think this way. You know, a quick example, this whole discussion people have all the time of, you know, oh, drunkenness, alcoholism, drug addiction, oh, that's a disease. No, it's not. It's sin and it's a choice. And I'm not even going to think that way. And if I can help it, I'm not going to let you think that way. This helmet that protects my thinking, I'm going to do my best to protect my mind against the thoughts my enemy would want to put in here. And I'm also going to do my best to protect your thoughts with that helmet of salvation to protect you from what might come. I, uh, pipe wrench, you've seen pipe wrench, you know, got that big nut in it, that big toothed arm, the crank, and it goes up and down. I uh, knocked a co-worker out with just that round nut out of the pipe wrench. He was 60 feet below me on a tower, and I was talking to him and cranking my pipe wrench open and got distracted with the conversation and just kept cranking. And I saw something fall, and before I could say a word, that went whap, right off the top of his head. And he just slumped down in his safety harness. I spent the next half hour getting him off the tower and getting him to treatment. We wore our safety helmets and rig all the time, but it was a hot day, and after all, all we were doing now was working on the electrical run, and uh, that's why I needed my pipe wrench was to tighten conduit sections. <clears throat> so, hey, we don't need our hard hats, right? <laughs> Knocked him out cold. Small things. They'll damage you really badly. Small spiritual things damage you really badly. Helmet of salvation, continuously protecting. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Offensive Weapon in all of this armament, word of God. Use the word of God on people who are not saved in arguments. Just keep reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading the word of God for the rest of your life. Just keep it flowing into your life because it will come out of your mouth at the appropriate times. And it will disarm people. 
You'll have a power that you didn't even realize was at your disposal. You will say things at the right time that will shut people's mouths. Now, I was with a group uh, in this whole discussion, rioting versus protesting. And, you know, look at these guys running just because they're police there. And the statement is made, well, they're not even doing anything wrong. I said, you notice that group of people who don't run away? Yeah. You notice right next to them, that whole group ran away? Yeah, I said the guilty man flees when no one pursues him. The innocent people stayed right there. Cops show up, they don't care. They're just waiting to see what happens or maybe even grateful that they show up. The, the group that runs, Scripture says that the guilty man flees when no one pursues them. The Word of God, it is our armament. And we need to be prepared with it. You need to sharpen that thing with continual use, constantly preparing yourself for the battles we face. Praying always with all prayers and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end and with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Constantly praying. Hey, listen. Convert your thoughts to prayer. As you see the situations, as you think about the situations, as you dwell upon the situations of your life, just turn them towards the Lord. Right? Prayer doesn't mean that you got to like set up your little shrine once a day and bow down in special ways and you know have this strange disciplined approach. Just make your life a prayer. When you wake up, greet the Lord. If you, you know, can spend time in the word and prayer with him as you begin and then as you launch out into your day just keep that all in conversation with the lord constantly praying this is what paul is saying we definitely should have those concerted times of prayer starting and ending our day but making our lives of prayer Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And then he makes this statement. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. You got people around you. I have a ton of people around me who are over me in authority in the faith who minister to me and to many others and I continuously support them and pray for them and with them that they would be successful at what they do that I would find opportunity to make them successful to do everything I can to help them in the warfare they're engaged in Paul here you know we're studying his word again tonight He's affecting us sitting here in this room. These Ephesians that received this letter praying for him have made him prosperous and successful all the way to us tonight. That's a significant thing. I, I mean, I'd be amazed if, you know, years from now, what I have done in ministry is still affecting people. Pray to God it would be the case. Pray to God that what we do here together would affect the world around us for years and decades and generations to come. You know, that I would be given utterance and to boldly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's in prison because of that preaching. That it in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I would encourage you to underline that. That in it I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. You ought to speak. If you've reserved your faith to, uh, people know I go to church, people know I'm a Christian, people know, you got to open your mouth. You got to share, you got to teach, you got to preach the gospel. Uh, if you are of that mindset, oh, I don't want to be pushy, I don't, I don't, I want to be a silent witness. The term witness is martyr, right? 
we've turned it into meaning a representation of Christianity, and that's not what it means at all. Being a witness, according to the scripture, means you have already laid down your life for the cause of Christ. You've already done it. You in your mind and in your heart and in your purpose and in your intention have already said my life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Christ. We need to open our mouths boldly in this way. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose. That you may that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Tychicus did his job. We have the letter here, having been delivered, but the example is there also. We must be faithful, right? If if you are leaving it to me, Will Cass, to do this work, we collectively are going to be incredibly minimized. You must be faithful in whatever role you have. Taking this message that I'm delivering you right now out into the world. If Tychicus had not been faithful, and there were many reasons not to, Rome was killing Christians. The Judaizers were killing Christians. It would have been easier for Tychicus to shrink into obscurity and not have been faithful to the cause of Christ's ministry through Paul. If you think I'm just reaching out there into imagination and saying, this could have happened, by the time Paul's finished with his ministry, he has to write and say, all have forsaken me. Everyone has left me. No one is faithful to the cause in ministry anymore. People do that. Over time, they fade from the service of the Lord. And most of why that happens is people just get caught up in their own lives. They begin to look after themselves rather than the cause of Christ. Thank goodness for the example of Tychicus. Peace to the brethren and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with you all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And the last point I want to dwell on is that term sincerity. Again, it's the idea of being without wax. The potters of the day would form the vessels and put them in the kiln to fire them. And a fair amount of the time, they would crack Well, that's a loss of raw materials and time and effort. So they had a process of mixing ground clay with wax, melting it into those cracks and smoothing it all out. Usually they would then paint that and sell it. You don't know that it has a big crack in it that's been filled with wax until you pour hot liquid in it. And it melts and runs out all over the place. And you're left going, wow, I bought a piece of junk. And back then, you made a substantial investment and something that was useless. So the potters began to advertise, my pottery is without wax. The term was my pottery is sincere. It doesn't have any fakeness to it. I haven't patched things up so that it looks good to you, but you put it under stress and it'll fall apart. So when Paul says, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. You want the grace, you want the peace, you want the love, you want these things, Paul is literally saying it's going to have to be that you're without wax. You're you're without fakeness. That's how you're going to accomplish it. That's how you're going to experience it. And honestly, those are the only ones that this blessing applies to. 
if we are insincere, then none of what Paul just said applies. It needs to be that we would walk in sincerity and truth. Amen? So, we will leave off there for this week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, we thank you very much for your love and your grace, and we ask that you would bless us, keep us, watch over us, minister to us, Lord. Use us as your sons and daughters, your servants. Lord, we long to be your instruments of truth and peace to the world that's so desperately in need of you. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.